0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. For someone who certainly appreciates gourmet food, but for whom spending time in the kitchen is so not a natural act, having a conversation with the owner of a successful and renowned restaurant who is also a cookbook author and James Beard Award winning chef is nothing short of massive culinary intimidation. But hell, this is a conversation and not a competition. My guest today is Joanne Colleen, who, along with her late husband, George Germain, opened the highly successful and respected Al Forno restaurant in Providence, Rhode Island, in 1980. It's credited with pioneering a number of recipes and was the birthplace of grilled pizza, pies flash-grilled at high heat, drawing crowds eager to sink their teeth into a chewy crust. Fast forward to 1988. That was the year Joanne was included in the inaugural class of Food and Wine Best New Chefs. She and George received the James Beard Award for Best Chef Northeast in 1993. And Joanne was a semifinalist for the Foundation's Outstanding Chef Award in 2018. She has also mentored some of the most influential chefs in the business. And as I mentioned, Joanne's written cookbooks, Cucina Simpatica robust trattoria cooking from Al Forno, and on top of spaghetti, macaroni, linguini, penne, and pasta of every kind. She also travels extensively, connecting with food and wine producers and importers. So sit back and enjoy what will clearly be a mouth-watering conversation with this culinary heavyweight, Joanne. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Providence today. Good morning, Sandy. It's very nice to be with you. Joanne, back in the day, was your family when you were growing up adept in the kitchen or were you having pot pies? How did that work for you when you were growing up?
1: Um, My mom was a widow and she was also a physician. So most of the cooking was done by my auntie, my aunt Sophie, who was an amazing cook when it came to ethnic food like pierogi and guamki but everyday food was in the fifties, not so interesting. So as soon as I could cook myself, I started cooking for no other reason than it was always interesting to me. And I think it was, I mean, I always enjoyed it from the time I was a very little girl. So were you cooking for
0: just Joanne or did you find yourself making dinner for
1: everybody? I would do lunches. I would do dinners. I mean, I started just, the first thing I ever cooked was a fried egg, and I forgot to put butter in the pan. So I did not have Mm -hmm. an auspicious beginning. But I can remember one Mother's Day when I decided to make crepe Suzette's, and I couldn't get the curacao. First of all, I bought blue curacao, not regular curacao. So that was (laughs) pretty weird. Uh Uh-huh. I couldn't get it to flame, so I just kept adding more and more curacao, so they were totally housed crap.
0: <laughs> With the fire department, did they show up uh, at any point? No.
1: <laughs> no, the fire was coming out of our mouths. There was so much
0: <laughs> You weren't doing this for survival purposes. You were doing it because you enjoyed it. Exactly. Exactly. And I still do. Well, who were you cooking for back in the day? Who lived with
1: you? Well, my mom and my sis, my Aunt Sophie. And for special Sundays especially, we would have kind of fancy lunches. So that would be the time that I would get into the kitchen. My mom would cook on holidays, but she really didn't have the time to cook any other time of the week or the month or the year because she was always working.
0: Sure, sure. Do you think it makes a huge difference in terms of what one is exposed to growing up? There was absolutely nothing sexy about what we had in my house growing up. It was meat and potatoes and a vegetable. And you know what? We seem to always have jello for dessert. (laughs) My mother would add fruit to it, made her feel like she was, what, reinvented the wheel or something.
1: Well, I had the same kind of upbringing for basic meals. And the jello came out when the bananas on the counter were getting ripe. And they were not going to be so good the next day. That's when we made jello. But the other thing that, very lucky, because my mother exposed me to restaurants. I grew up in New Jersey, in Lyndhurst. So the Lincoln Tunnel was maybe five, six miles from our house. And did have a day off we often went into the city and she would take us to really nice restaurants and then when i was eight years old she started taking us to europe oh wow so i had great exposure and not that i appreciated it so much at such a young age but i i remember I remember it. I remember the first time I went to France. I remember the first time I had unsalted butter in France. And I remember the soups and how delicious everything was and the fruit. So I I was very, very lucky growing up. I had great exposure.
0: So was your takeaway from those trips, the fact that you were going to recreate back home in Jersey, what you were eating abroad?
1: Pretty much. And I, you know, I was one of the early followers of Julia Child, but I would look at the recipes and say to myself, well, why do I have to do all these steps? I can fast forward to something else. And for the most part, it was successful. I can remember making her mushroom soup and it was like every pot and pan in the kitchen, every bowl. And it just seemed (laughs) I had to streamline it (laughs) for myself. And that's the beginning of experimentation for me, I guess.
0: So I also read in your bio that you wound up going to the Rhode Island School of Design for college, RISD. And that's our connection because a very old and dear friend of mine went to RISD. And how and why did that happen? Did you know that you were not necessarily going to make Anything culinary, your life's work?
1: I know art was, the, was my whole focus. And um, I ended up doing photography at RISD. So I spent a lot of time alone in a dark room. And when I would come out of the dark room and into the light, I wanted to cook something. So that was kind of a release from the process of making photographs and being alone a lot.
0: So did that allow you?
1: to exhale, that cooking was your safe space. That's exactly how it was. It was a release from uh, the day's work. Mm-hmm. I could relax. It was a relaxation process and I find that things flow better from me when I'm not thinking too seriously about things. When I'm looking in the refrigerator and thinking, oh, this would be good with that or you know, whatever, and then just putting something together. And my husband, George, was the same way. You know, the best meals we cook for each other were the ones where, you know, we just put things together and had a glass of wine and talked to each other, and then the food would be on the table. And he would say, to Ben, nobody else is enjoying this with us.
0: <laughs> but when you met George, and that wasn't RISD,
1: what was his major? He started out in ceramics, but he found that the medium wasn't, I guess, big enough for him. So he switched to sculpture. And he was really a Renaissance man in that he could do just about anything. So he could paint, he could draw. He did production pottery for a number of years. Production pottery. Where he would make 500 mugs a day. He would wear- Oh my God. 500 pounds of clay and then from the early morning to late at night he would throw whatever he was and what kept him interested was making casseroles and thinking what he would cook in the casserole Right. Uh (laughs) was it easy for you to marry your passions I would say yes but I think the passion that sealed the deal was our passion for food After I graduated, I moved to Florence, and our mutual friend Ruth did visit me while I was living there. George, at the same time, I didn't know it because we were not a couple at the time, but he was living in Rome doing the European Honors Program for RISD, teaching. So when we both came back to the United States, we started working together in a restaurant because I had spent all my money on a very fancy camera, and George just always loved having a job in food. So we ended up at the same restaurant. And I mean, I fell in love with him right away. It was just incredible. (laughs) We wooed each other with the food that I learned in Florence and the food that he learned in Rome. And that's our relationship started with food.
0: So that's how your personal relationship started. But take us on that timeline. How did it morph into something more than a passion that the two of
1: you shared with each other and that maybe
0: shared with friends and relatives.
1: We were doing freelance artwork. And as I'm sure you know, in freelance, you send a bill and sometimes you get paid right away. Sometimes it's three months or whatever. So that's how I ended up working in a restaurant just to make extra money. And George, pretty much the same thing. But once we got together, the food basically took over our lives because it was something that we could do together and we meshed really, really well in the kitchen. So it, it got to a point where I could start a recipe and I, I could get stuck and say, George, what does this need? And boom, he'd come up with exactly the right thing and vice versa. So it was an incredible symbiotic relationship in food. It just sounds, as you're describing
0: it, It just flowed. That's absolutely accurate.
1: And that's not necessarily heard of. That's a big deal. And the other thing that's not heard of so much is that we work together 24 hours a day. And I can't imagine having had a different life. I mean, I loved working with George. He had my back, I had his back. And it just worked out well. Whereas some married couples can't work with each other, it was magic
0: so here you are working together for someone else so how was al forno born
1: it's kind of a long story but the restaurant that we were both working in ended up not doing so well it's a very complicated issue but it ended up that it closed it was really an incredible restaurant and it was american food and um it, the owner was way ahead of his time. And I think that's part of the reason the restaurant didn't last or go the the distance. But Mm -hmm. it was really quite incredible. And again, way ahead of its time. It opened in 1975 and it was beautiful. The food was delicious. The owner was, I would say, pretty much a genius when it comes to food and knowing quality and insisting on quality. So that's kind of where I got my professional chops. George was the head chef and I was one of the pastry chefs and also a garde manger person when the restaurant was open. And then everything, you know, I started doing lunches for him by myself. So it was, a, it was an incredible experience. George was the head chef, and he was in charge of the kitchen. And he was—he's the only real mentor I had, except for the owner of the restaurant. Why did it fail? Well, uh, I think again he was ahead of his time, and it was an era of maybe drugs, and not that I got involved in it, but I think people may have. Uh, I don't know if that's for everybody's ears. but So then
0: was it an obvious choice between the two of you to create your own space and place? Yes,
1: yes. And in fact, we started out with the idea of doing it with the owner of the restaurant that failed. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: So we started out with that in mind and very quickly he jumped ship and it was just George and me and we carried on.
0: Was that difficult to give birth to a restaurant in terms of the mundane, uh, the backing and the money and all that stuff, which which takes away from the creativity part of
1: it? Yes, it does take away from the creativity part of it. After we rented this space in Providence, George and I were, and the owner of the restaurant, we were all in a head-on collision. Fine. So I was out of commission for several months, and then my energy level didn't return for another several months. And in the meantime, the previous owner of the previous restaurant bailed. George and I are alone trying to get this place open it was tiny and um we did most of the work ourselves so since george was adept at carpentry electricity plumbing uh even though we had some professionals work with us the building of the restaurant the actual building was mostly george and he would show me how to do something in construction and i would do it but it was basically the thing. It sounds like a fairy tale or a nightmare, but that's what happened. That's how it worked. <laughs> I,
0: At the risk of deifying you, and I don't mean to do that, the more you talk, the more it's jaw-dropping for me. That it. I mean, I don't know how you feel when you go back in time and discuss your life, but as you're doing it, do you feel that each step was just a very natural act. Well, we've got to do this. And now we've got to do that. And we don't have to make a freaking big deal out of everything.
1: That's pretty much it. And I have to say that we were bumbling along. We were, I like to say that we were an overnight success after seven years because <laughs> okay. there was a lot of crying and boo-hooing and uh, not getting a salary for literally seven years. And then a wonderful article came out in Bon Appetit magazine. And that was kind of the beginning of success. (laughs) By that time, we were kind of seasoned. So we were used to the kind of work and we had grown, we had learned how to do things. We had learned how to pay salaries. We had learned how to pay taxes and
0: Make money to pay salaries and pay taxes.
1: (laughs) But I I rarely talk about my past uh, and and there's so much of it. I mean, now the restaurant is 43 years old. I mean, if you think back four decades to what food was like then and what it's like now, it's incredible.
0: Did you know that your restaurant was just going to have a different bent to it? And also, before
1: you answer that, What does Al Forno mean? It means from the oven. And the name came because the one piece of cooking equipment we had was a large deck oven. So everything had to be done in the oven. So Al Forno baked or from the oven. We would even boil pasta in that oven. Wow, wow. It was crazy. It was like, so we approached it from a standpoint of artists Not cooks. We're self taught cooks, or now after 43 years, I can call myself a chef, but we're self taught. We were both self taught. So we approach things in a very different way. And a good friend used to say that, you know, we were basically just home cooks, which is not an insult because I think home cooking is a wonderful thing. And we might be maybe a little bit more sophisticated. Than home cooks, but our food was that kind of food, just very simple, very straightforward. The lessons we learned in Italy, even now, when you go to a restaurant, the ingredients might come from five miles away. They don't come from 3,000 miles away. So very, very seasonal and very, very regional. And those were lessons that we learned. So when we cut back to Rhode Island and opened our own place, we commissioned a farmer to grow a field of basil for us because basil was not readily available like you said things just flowed we just did things the way we felt they should be done not the way a professional taught us to do so even though corn was not an ingredient in the food of Italy it was something that was very good here and very native and very local and so corn became a big deal in the summer tomatoes became a big deal in the summer things that i mean just seasonal things not so easy in the winter but so fabulous in the summer
0: explain the birth of the grilled pizza that you did something that was unheard of here even though that was
1: not the case in italy Sandy, it is the case in Italy. Grilled pizza does not exist in Italy. It was oh, George, okay, completely on his own, and so we did one. We did a renovation about a year after we opened because we realized that one piece of cooking equipment just wasn't enough. So we renovated the kitchen. We put in a wood burning grill, and George was a you know loved fire cooking, and one day he just said to me. Because we both love pizza, and we both had our favorite pizzaiola. I had one in Fiesole outside of Florence, and he had his favorite in Rome near the Campo di Fiori. So we're crazy about pizza in Italy. And he said one day, well, we don't have a pizza oven. Why don't I try doing a pizza on the grill, live fire underneath? And I thought, George, you are now completely out of your mind. But he tried it. I, I made the dough. He mm-hmm. the dough on the grill, and within 30 minutes, we had grilled pizza, and it was delicious.
0: Mm-hmm. And so did that become clearly Al Forno's signature dish?
1: I would say so. Another dish that has been on the menu basically from day one is pasta with five cheeses. And that's something that I came up with because... At the time, we couldn't get the same cheeses that we could get in Italy. We could get pecorino cheese, but even parmigiano, reggiano was hard to find. So a dish that I made in Italy with a wonderful southern cook, southern Italian cook, uh, was a penne that she made a tomato sauce. She put the penne in, put cream in, parmigiano, and it had this wonderful stringy, Uh, cheesy quality to it. When I got back to the United States and tried to make that with the cheeses available, which was basically shelf-stable grated cheese in the green package that we all used when we were kids, it was horrible. So I decided I would bake it and put other cheeses in it that would mimic that stringy quality. So I would put Mozzarella in and the pecorino, and I came up with something that was very similar to what I had learned in Italy. And that that I'd say the grilled pizza and the pasta five cheese, those are the two most popular items on our menu. Did Al Forno
0: take off relatively quickly?
1: I, I guess we did. People recognized immediately that something different was going on at Al Forno, so it's just started off very slowly, and so we had. We had time on our hands to grow, which was in the end. I mean, looking back, the best thing that could have happened to us if it had been a sensation from day one and we were packed every night or every day because we started out just doing breakfast, then we did uh, breakfast and lunch, wait, and then we were- wait, stop. You just started out
0: doing breakfast? Yes. <laughs> what did you start?
1: Breakfast was very simple. We made homemade jams. We made a type of beignet that we did in the oven rather than deep frying, because, as I said, we only had an oven. We had great coffee, and it was very very simple. And then almost immediately we started with lunch. So, baked pasta. We did pizzelle diere. It's kind of a French-Italian take on a type of pizza. Uh, We did basic sausage and peppers, you know, what every kind of Italian-American has every now and then. Very simple, simple things. And then once we did the first renovation, then everything kind of opened up to us and we had the cooking equipment that we really needed to move forward.
0: And you really, really took off at that point then?
1: I would say yes.
0: So when you start to gain this notoriety that extended beyond Providence, Rhode Island, is that when this, all these other accolades started to pour in like the James Beard
1: Award? How did that impact you? What was that like for you? It was a wonderful thing to be recognized for the work that you do. But every wonderful thing that happened, we just sat back and said, uh-oh, we've got to be better. I mean, this was really nice, but we've got to be better. So it, as wonderful as it was, the pressure was severe.
0: <laughs> but that was self-created.
1: Absolutely. We're our own lunatics. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. What was that like for you on a personal level to get these honors and these, this is just not something from the Providence Gazette saying you should try Al Forno because the food is good. And this is heavy-duty shit. It is
1: heavy-duty shit. And, you know, because of it, we met wonderful people. We did a lot of events for City Meals on Wheels and different charities. So we got to travel. I mean, we never took a vacation. But because of these events, we would go to cook at City Meals on Wheels in Chicago or New York. And it was a wonderful camaraderie of chefs at that point. And I think it still is. But those were were kind of the beginnings of so many things in this country. It really was a magical time.
0: What do you think when I say that you mentored some of the most influential chefs in the business, accepting all these awards and accolades, it may not be what defined you. It may not be that you and George sat back and said, oh, you know, we just got today the food and wine or James Beard or whatever, but that had to be not a validation, but What an acknowledgement, even though that might have been stating the obvious.
1: It was very exciting. It seems like a long time ago now. Uh, But it was such a great time to do what we did. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it.
0: And it all kind of worked for you. It was never really a slog.
1: (laughs) Well, it was kind of a slog. I was sleep deprived for many years, but... You know, it was the excitement. There's nothing better than at the end of an evening, you've served, you know, you've, you've it's a record. Our, our place seated 46 if there was, as one would say, it took us in every seat. Yeah. And <laughs> one, you know, one night we did 175, you know, turning over and moving and blah, blah, blah. And there's nothing like the feeling at the end of the night to know you did a good job and you're ready for the next day. So that's what sustains you. It's just the excitement. It's the gratification of of a job well done. And it's not always a job well done, but when everything works well, it's wonderful. Did
0: the two of you entertain opening up more restaurants?
1: Well, we did, in fact, open different restaurants. We opened a restaurant for Louis Boston, which was a Huge fashionista store. So their restaurant was called Cafe Louis. And for, let's see, maybe three or four years, we ran that restaurant and it was a huge success. And then we decided we needed some time and we took a sabbatical and put a group of people in place to run Al Forno. Uh, So we took a sabbatical and then realized. Our second book was coming out. I finished the second book when we were living in France. And when the book was coming out, we realized we had to come back to do promotion. We also realized that we had to reassess the management team at Al Forno. So we came back. We fell in love with Providence all over again. We rearranged everything in the restaurant and then loved it so much that we never left. What year was that? That was 2006.
0: Okay. And so in a way, you kind of reinvented yourself again.
1: Yeah, it was the excitement of falling in love all over again. You know, I don't know that I appreciated even Rhode Island as much as I did when I was away from it. And I would just drive over the Newport Bridge or the Jamestown Bridge and look around me and think, oh, my God, this is like one of the most beautiful places on earth and everything at the restaurant felt new and revitalized. And you're right. It was like reinventing ourselves and hopping back in. And it was, it was a very good feeling.
0: Did you and George ever consider opening up a restaurant
1: in another part of the country? Mm, Yes, we did consider New Orleans for a time, but for, you know, any number of, reasons that didn't work out. You know, I think there are people like Jean-Georges von Gerichten who are brilliant at opening restaurants. And I think his food is brilliant. I think he's maybe, maybe the, or one of the most important chefs of our time. I totally respect what he does. And I cannot believe that he can do restaurants all over the world and have them be successful, but he's very good at that. I don't think that's necessarily our talent. Mm
0: -hmm. What does it mean in in terms of explaining how you've mentored some of the most influential chefs
1: in the business? We taught, I mean, George was a very good teacher. He had a lot of experience teaching and I think I'm a pretty good teacher myself, but we never had secrets. We never said, okay, um, this is the recipe and held back three ingredients. If if it was a technique, we showed the technique. And I think the way we explained things was as artists, not necessarily as cooks. So I think there were things that we could give people that, let's say, a culinary trained person might not be able to. Can you teach people that the art of the art of cooking? I think you can certainly fine-tune a person's aesthetic. One star chef who did work with us uh, while she was at Brown is Suzanne Goen from Los Angeles. And she wrote in her cookbook that George would say to her, she she was doing salads in Garde Manger, and he would say to her, I want you to make this look like the salad was born on the plate. Things that might not inspire everybody, but inspired like minded people who had creativity, who could understand what we were saying. I wonder if you and George, by
0: virtue of the fact that you were artists before you went into the kitchen, that here you are in this renowned school, Rhode Island School of Design, you for photography him for sculpture and that in and of itself
1: puts the two of you in a separate category I think it does and I think the one very important lesson that we learned at RISD was it taught us to think our training as artists taught us how to solve problems because you'd be given a problem and you would have to do something in a media of some sort and make it make sense. So we used our RISD training, I would say, every single day. I still use my RISD training every day. The restaurants were designed mostly by George with some input from me, but he really could do anything. And the restaurant is is unique because it really reflects two people's brains.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it gives you a leg up. I can't imagine that there were many twosomes like you and George in
1: terms of background do you take pictures because of the pandemic the restaurant closed for six to nine months I don't remember exactly how much and I was working on our next cookbook where it actually would be my next cookbook but I couldn't go to the markets I couldn't get ingredients so I was very frustrated and and I turned back to photography to give me the release that I needed. So I started taking photographs very seriously, mostly just posting on Instagram and doing the photography with my iPhone. But I started doing photography projects. So the first thing I did was called the unmade bed. And every morning I would get out of bed and photograph my bed while it was still warm and the influence i mean there's for me an unmade bed is pretty sexy or can be and our, i remember being in florence and being in a hotel breakfast room and looking out the window and looking down into a bedroom and the the windows were open and the bed was empty and unmade and i took a photograph of it and i thought i don't know it just spoke to me somehow so for a full year Every day I woke up, I photographed my bed. <laughs> my, one of my projects. Uh, d- dare I ask if you ever made it? I have to make my bed. I'm like crazy about that.
0: that. That's that's one of my idiosyncrasies also. I wanted to ask you, are you commuting? Are you going back and forth to Europe with uh, regularity?
1: Well, I was before the pandemic. Uh-huh. And then in the first three years, the only traveling I did was with a friend who has a plane. So every year we do a wine trip. I do this with Eli Zabar and his team. So we were able to do our wine trips every year and we felt safe because we were mostly in the country. We didn't spend any time in cities and um, it was a very controlled environment. But for Almost three years, that's that's the only traveling I did. And now I'm going back and forth with some regularity. I just got back from Italy and had an amazing time just recharging my batteries.
0: <laughs> I can see how that could be just a great shot in the arm. So, Joanne, as you look back over your life, and hopefully you so appreciate who you are and what you've done, what direction might you be headed in? Is there something that I must do before I leave these mortal coils? Well, I don't spend a lot
1: of time in the future. I really try to spend time in the present. So, I you know, there are always things that I want to do. I do want to do another cookbook. I want to get back into that. But, every, you know, I'm never bored. There are a, a gazillion things I want to do, And there are never enough hours in the day to do it. I want to thank you so
0: much for taking time out of your busy day to talk to such a a
1: challenged, God, I wouldn't even call me a cook. I would love to cook for you, Sandy, and you have a reason to come to Providence. You have two friends here now.
0: Oh, that's very sweet. And also, for those of you who find yourself in Providence and would love to dine at Al Forno, it's located at 577 South Water Street. Its website address is alforno.com. And the phone number is 401-273-9760. Joanne Colleen, thank you for sharing your life and your passion. It's just been nothing short of so interesting and so easy. And yes, one of these days, I'll, you'll know when I'm at
1: Alforno. <laughs> It was a total pleasure, and I look forward to cooking for you. Well, thank you again. You're welcome, Sandy. you. Join
0: us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.